Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yes, there we go. Good morning, Harvest family. How are you all today? Hopefully you had a, uh, a good Thanksgiving, uh, maybe with, uh, not with as many family members and friends, but uh, hopefully with some family and some friends and uh, just enjoyed uh, the, the weekend together. I want you to, um, I want us to, um, to think about a question, all right, as we kind of launch into this today. And the question that I want, to think about, I want us to think about is this. What matters most in life to you? Just kind of think about that for a moment. What matters most in life to you? It's kind of that season of the year and with all that's gone on this year that we've kind of taken pause to sort of process a little bit, really what matters most in life? So just think about that for a moment. What matters most in life to you? Or maybe a, maybe a more important question would be this one. What matters most in life to God? What matters most in life to God? And God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the first three verses that Wes just read a moment ago that I can have the eloquence of a great orator. I can have the knowledge of a genius. I can have the faith of a miracle worker. I can have the generosity of a world-renowned philanthropist. I can have the achievements of a sports or entertainment superstar. But if I don't love, it's worth zero. In fact, worse than that, if I don't love, I'm worth zero. It doesn't count. I don't count. God says that if we don't love, then nothing we say will matter, nothing we know will matter, nothing we believe will matter, nothing we give will matter, nothing we accomplish will matter. God says that he wants each of us to understand that what matters most in life is love. What matters most in life is love. And if that's true, then perhaps one of the most important questions in all of life is this question, What in the world is love? 
If love is that essential, if love is that critical, then what in the world is love? What in the world is love? Well, we learned the last time that we were in this passage that the Bible teaches that love is a command, that love is a choice, that love is a conduct, that love is a commitment. In other words, God's word is telling us that it is imperative that we intentionally and consistently choose to practice love. If it is a command, a choice, a conduct, and a commitment, then God's word is telling us that it is imperative that we intentionally and consistently choose to practice love. And it's in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, that we learn what that intentional and that consistent practice looks like. In verse 4, we read that love is kind. In other words, love intentionally and consistently chooses to act with kindness. We talked the last time from the parable of the Good Samaritan about what is involved in kind of living a lifestyle of kindness. And we learn from that parable that living a lifestyle of kindness really begins by being sensitive to the needs of others. It starts with our eyes in the taking the time to direct our visual attention to the needs of others. We need to be sensitive to the needs of others. And then it involves our ears, where we are sympathetic and we sympathize with people's pain. We actually take the time to listen to what people are going through and the things that they're experiencing. And then it involves seizing the moment. And as in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we need to spend whatever it takes. We need to spend whatever it takes. That's kindness. And again, the Bible teaches us that it is imperative that we, we consistently and we intentionally choose to act in love, choose to act with kindness. Now, what we'd like to do this morning is to take two additional characteristics of love that we find here in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13 and sort of broaden our understanding as to what exactly is love. We'll look again at verse 4. It says in verse 4 that love does not envy. Love does not envy. In other words, it is impossible to envy someone and also to do what matters most in life. It is impossible to envy someone and love that person. God says you can't do it. God says love does not envy. They're like oil and water. They just don't go together. It's kind of interesting that in James chapter 3 and verse 16, we read these words, for where jealousy, and the word jealousy there in James 3 is the same word that's translated envy in 1 Corinthians 13, so where envy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I mean, just process that for a moment. God tells us that where envy exists, there will be disorder. And where envy exists, there is the potential for every single vile practice. Just think for a moment with me about all the problems that envy can contribute to. It can contribute to adultery, anorexia, bitterness, complaining, conflicts, dishonesty, exaggeration. Envy can lead to gossip, hypocrisy, insecurity, judgmentalism, manipulation, murder. It can lead to obsession, 
Envy can make us power hungry. It can make us rude. It can make us sarcastic. It can make us spiteful and stingy and stubborn. It can make us unforgiving and ungrateful. It can make us unkind and vain. Envy can turn us into worriers. It can also turn us into workaholics. So when you think about it, envy is one nasty sin. It is one destructive sin. But perhaps the the worst thing about envy is that envy keeps us from doing what matters most in life. It keeps us from love. Well, if envy is so destructive, and if it keeps us from doing what matters most in life, then the question is, how do you and I root envy out of our lives? How do we root envy out of our lives? In other words, we just don't want to prune envy. We just don't want to trim it back in our lives, all right? We want to dig down, get to the root, get it up, and get it out of our lives. So how do we root envy out of our lives? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 to 15, Jesus tells another parable. He tells the story of some workers who became extremely envious And I'd like to read that story to you, beginning in Matthew 20 and verse 1. And you follow along, and then we're going to spend some time looking at this story and learning how it is that we can root envy out of our lives. Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning, 6 a.m., to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, about the the sixth hour, noon, and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, or 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour or 5 p.m. came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first, 6 a.m. came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose or I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So in this story, in this parable that Jesus told, the first group of workers, the ones that started at 6 a.m. in the morning, they got exactly, exactly what they contracted for. They got a denarius for a day's work. But they were upset because they felt that the other four groups that the master hired were given what they didn't deserve. So they became filled with envy. They were filled with envy. And in this story, this parable, I think we learned some important biblical lessons 
about how you and I can root envy out of our lives. And again, why do we want to do that? We want to do that because where there's envy, there is disorder in every vile practice, and love cannot envy. Where there is envy, we can't do what matters most in life. So how can I root envy out of my life? Here's the first biblical lesson we learned from this story. Stop comparing myself to others. Stop comparing myself to others. You know, when we think about it, in many ways, comparing is really at the root of all forms, all types of envy. And comparing was really the first mistake that was made by these workers. They said, look at what they're getting, and then look at what we're getting. They compared themselves to each other. They said, we ought to be getting more. And I don't think in the Bible, I don't think God ever wants us to compare ourselves to anyone. Because when we compare ourselves to somebody else, be it another member of our family, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's a, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, somebody else, when we compare ourselves to other people, we, it either leads to pride or it leads to envy. When we start comparing, we either think I'm better than they are, which leads to pride, or as we compare, we think that they're better than I am, and that leads to envy. So I don't think God ever wants us to compare ourselves to anyone. He doesn't want us to do that. God says, never compare. You say, well, how do we stop comparing? Well, let me give you one insight that might help. We typically envy people because we don't know their whole story. We don't know their whole story. From a distance, everything in that individual's life, in that person's life, it just looks wonderful. It looks perfect. But when we get up close, we begin to see reality. We begin to see that they have issues in their life too. They have pain in their life too. From a distance, we can't see their hurt. So it's a whole lot easier to envy them. So one of the best things we can do to deal with envy is to get to know people better. If we find ourselves envying a particular person, get to know that person better. Because when we get to know people closely, we stop comparing ourselves. We begin to realize that life isn't any easier for them than it is for us. And we stop envying them because we stop comparing ourselves to them. So if we're going to root envy out of our life, then the first thing I need to do is stop comparing myself to others. The second thing that I need to do is start enjoying, start enjoying God's grace and God's goodness to others. Start enjoying God's grace and goodness to others. We need to learn, if we're going to root envy out of our lives, we need to learn to rejoice in other people's blessings. We need to learn to rejoice in other people's blessings. This is the exact opposite of what the workers did, the first group of workers did in this story. Those who worked all day were paid exactly what they contracted for. They weren't cheated. They weren't underpaid. They weren't ripped off, not in any way. But they were envious of other people being blessed. They didn't rejoice in the blessings of others. They were envious of the blessings and God's grace and goodness to others. In the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 15, in the opening part of that verse, Paul writes this, rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, you know, sometimes that's easy to do, isn't it? 
Sometimes if we're both cheering on the same football team and our football team happens to win on that Saturday or that Sunday, it's, either, it's easy to rejoice with those who are rejoicing because we're kind of rejoicing with them. But you know, sometimes, sometimes it's difficult to rejoice when others have successes and we kind of feel that maybe, maybe we're not having successes. Maybe we can illustrate it this way, and I'll use a bit of a uh, kind of a poor illustration, but it's kind of a Thanksgiving illustration. I think somehow in our minds, we think that the world is one giant pumpkin pie. Now, you've probably already had too much pumpkin pie, so that's the last thing you want to envision in your mind. But somehow in our minds, we think that the world is some big giant pumpkin pie, and it's all been divided into slices. And if somebody's slice gets a little bigger, then that must mean that my slice is going to be a little smaller. Folks, that is wrong. The truth is, and again, this is a bit of a poor illustration, God's got all the pumpkin pie in the world. He's got all the pumpkin pie in the world. He doesn't run out of blessings. God doesn't run out of grace. He doesn't run out of goodness. He, he, he just blesses us differently. He blesses us at different times. He blesses us in different ways. So we need to learn to rejoice in others' joys. We need to learn to rejoice when others are being blessed. If we want to root envy out of our lives, we need to start enjoying God's grace and goodness to others. I mean, think about it for a moment. If the only time I'm joyful as when I'm experiencing just amazing blessings from God, and I, I really sense those blessings and really feel those blessings, then you know, I'm going to miss out on an awful lot of joy. I'm going to miss out on an awful lot of happiness because I can't speak for your life. I can only speak for mine. But a lot of the days in my life are just normal. A lot of the days in my life are just average. Unfortunately, there's a lot of days in my life where I don't always sense the great outpouring of God's blessing in my life. In fact, some of the days in my life, and I'm sure it's true for you, there are actually some hard days in our lives that we experience. And if the only time we're happy, if the only time we find joy is when we're experiencing happy days, then we're going to miss out on an awful lot of joy. But we can be joyful a whole lot more if we choose to rejoice with others that are rejoicing. If we choose to be happy when others are experiencing blessings. So I not only need to look for the blessings that I'm experiencing in my own life and that I'm receiving from God in my own life, I need to look for the blessings that, that, that Wes and Sarah are experiencing or Noah is experiencing or Jamie and his family are experiencing or others are experiencing. Let's look and rejoice in the blessings that God is blessing others with. Let's enjoy God's grace and God's goodness to others. That is a critical way to root envy out of our lives. Here's a third thing from the story. Be grateful for what I have. If I'm going to root envy out of my life, then I need to be grateful for what I have. So instead of focusing on what I don't have, let's be grateful for what we do have. Instead of complaining like these, these workers did and comparing like these workers did about what wasn't happening and what they didn't get, let's learn to realize that we would have nothing, we would have nothing if it wasn't for the grace and the goodness of God. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, 
Paul asked the, the followers of Christ at Corinth a question. It's kind of a rhetorical question. He asked them this question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? The simple answer is nothing. We don't have anything that we didn't receive. The next breath that we breathe is actually a gift that we have received from God. We have nothing that we did not receive. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say this. He says, already you have all you want. He says, already you have become rich. I'm not sure the Corinthian believers were getting that. I'm not sure. In fact, I know I don't always get that. I don't always get that everything I have, I've received as a gift from God's goodness and grace, nor do I realize that I already have so much that I am rich when I think about all that I have from God. You see, envy is based on the myth that I have to have more to be happy, that I have to have something else to be happy. Envy always looks at others and sort of asks, well, well, why them? Why them? But you see, gratitude, gratitude says, God, why me? I can't believe it. Your goodness. I can't believe, I can't believe your grace. When we're envious of others, just think about it for a moment. When we're envious of others, what we really want is we want them to fail, right? When we're envious of others, we have a good day when they have a bad day. Isn't that sad? Isn't that crazy? You know, isn't that an awful thing? But that's the way envy works. So to solve our envy problems, to begin to root envy out of our lives, I need to be grateful for what I have. I need to be grateful for what I have. Here's a fourth thought from this story dealing with how to root envy out of my life. Trust God, trust God when life seems unfair. I've got to learn to trust God when life seems unfair. When it looks like God is blessing someone in a way that it looks like he's not blessing me, I need to trust God that he knows exactly, knows exactly what each individual life needs. He knows exactly what my life needs. He knows exactly what, what their life needs in that moment. He understands that. He gets that. You see, in this story that Jesus told, the workers felt that they were being treated unfairly, not because they, were, uh, they weren't paid what they were promised, but because other people were paid the same amount. They thought that the master of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard, the Lord of the vineyard, they thought that he wasn't being fair. I mean, look at what they said in verse 12. Go back to Matthew 15, verse 12, or Matthew 20, verse 12. He said, these last, this is what the workers said, the first workers, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They basically looked at the Lord of the vineyard, the master, and said, you're not fair. You're not fair. You're not being fair with us. That's what they thought. They said the owner wasn't being fair. And notice how the owner replied in verse 13. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The owner says, I'm, I'm not being unfair. I'm not being unfair at all. You know, when you listen to that little dialogue that took place between the early workers and the owner, it reminds us of something that's very true about envy. And that is this, that the bottom line when I'm envious is that I'm really not in a battle with someone else. I'm really in a battle with God. The issue with these workers, 
They weren't really in a battle with the other workers. They were in a battle with the master of the vineyard. They were in a battle with the Lord of the vineyard. They thought that he was unfair. And when I'm envious, I'm really in a battle with God. My problem isn't really with the people I envy. What I'm really doing when I envy is I'm questioning God's goodness. I'm resenting God's decision-making. I'm accusing God of being unfair. I'm thinking that God loves someone else more than he loves me. What I'm doing when I'm envious is I'm actually building an entire case against God. And I need to realize, and I need to trust that God has a good reason why I don't have all the things in my life that I think I ought to have in that moment. God has good reason for that. I need to trust God in that. God knows me better and loves me more than I know myself or than that anyone else loves me. I need to trust him. I need to say, God, you have a unique plan for my life, and I'm just going to trust you in this. I'm just going to trust in your timing. I'm just going to trust in your, the circumstances that you're allowing into my life. I'm just going to trust you in the circumstance of my life. I'm just going to trust you in this. So if we're going to root envy out of our life, we need to trust God when life seems unfair. And here's a fifth thing. If we're going to root envy out of our lives, I need to keep focused on God's plan for my life. I need to keep focused on God's plan for my life. Don't get distracted by what's going on in other people's lives. Now, what I mean by that is not that we never pay attention to anybody else's life or that we don't care about anybody else's life, but don't get so focused and so distracted on God's plan for other people's lives. Focus on God's will and plan for my own life. You notice what the master said in verse 14. He says to these workers that were envious, he says, take what belongs to you and go. In other words, he's saying, take, stay focused, stay focused, on what's been given to you. Take what belongs to you and go. Stay focused on what I've given to you, the master says to them. You know, the sad truth is some of us are still envying the person that got to be prom queen. Some of us are still envying the person that got to be JV quarterback. And here we are, 64 years old, you know, and we're still trying to sort through all of that. Folks, we got to stop that. We need to realize that it's not about God's plan for somebody else's life. That's not where our primary focus should be. Our primary focus should be on God's amazing plan for our life. I mean, think about what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin, think envy, that clings so closely, and instead, what are we to do? We're to run, we're to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So you could plug envy into that verse. And the writer of Hebrews saying, don't get all hung up on the sin of envy, that sin that clings so closely, all right? That sin that weighs you down. Instead, what are you to do? How do we root it out of our lives? Running with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, when you and I get focused on the race that God has for each of us to run, I really don't have time to envy anyone. I can't be bothered with envy because I'm really trying to live my life for the Lord. 
I'm really trying to discern and, and act upon his will and his plan and his purpose for my very own life. That's where my focus is. That's where God wants me to be. So if we're going to root envy out of our lives, we need to keep focus on God's plan for our life. Now, in the story of the laborers, Jesus actually concludes the story with a statement in verse 16 that we didn't read before. In verse 16, the Lord concludes the story with this, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And then just a little later in that same chapter, verse 26, Christ says this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. What's he saying there? Well, he's probably saying a number of things, but I think one of the things that Christ is trying to get across to us as the audience, he's saying when we get to heaven, none of the things that we envy on earth are going to matter to God. Not our earthly success, not our earthly wealth, not our talent or beauty or fame or accomplish, accomplishments. When we all get to heaven, that's, that's just not gonna, that's not gonna matter. None of those things that we envy are gonna matter. What's really gonna matter to God are being a servant to others, our willingness to put ourselves last, our love for others. Why? Because love is what matters most in life. Love is what matters most in life. And so if, if we are going to recognize that it is imperative that we, we consistently and we um, uh, constantly uh, practice what it means to, to love, then we not only need to daily act in kindness, but we need to root envy out of our lives because love does not envy. Love does not envy. So let's look at a third quality of love. You notice again in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, it says this about love. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. In other words, love is humble. Love is humble. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love is humble. And because humility is a part of love, that means that humility is something we must intentionally and consistently choose to practice each day. So what that tells me is that, that somehow, or some way, humility is not so much just a personality characteristic. It is an action that I either choose or don't choose to follow every day. I've got to make that choice to be humble. So let's talk a little bit about some ways that we can practice humility. And I say practice humility because none of us will ever become experts at humility. None of us will ever arrive at humility. None of, none of us will ever be able to look at someone else or look in the mirror and say, I've got humility. You know, humility is that quality when you think you've got it, you've what? Lost it, right? I mean, that's the way humility works, you know? If you think you've got it, you've lost it. So we are going to be forever practicing humility. We're going to be forever growing into what it means to act humbly. So let's talk briefly about some ways that we can practice humility and by doing so, do what matters most in life. Here's a first thought. We practice humility when I practice giving preference to others. I practice humility when I practice giving preference to others. I mean, think about, think about situations in your life down-to-earth situations, simple situations, 
where it can be really tough sometimes to give preference to others. Just think about that. Let's, uh, let's turn back the clock to Tuesday, okay? And Tuesday of this past week, let's assume for a moment that you were in, in Myers, all right? And you were in the checkout line at Myers. And uh, if you're like the rest of us, you invariably chose the slowest lane to check out, right? You scoped them all out. You thought you found the one that was gonna be the fastest lane, but nope, it just never works that way. You're in the slowest lane. So here you are, it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. You really don't wanna be at Myers. You're in the slowest lane possible. And the lady behind you has a little kid and that little kid keeps bumping his cart into your rear end. You know, and you're kind of looking back and you think, does that child not know anything about social distancing? Stay on your ex, you know? And so suddenly as you're in the line and you're frustrated, it's a Tuesday before Thanksgiving, you don't want to be at Myers, the kid is hitting you in the rear end with the cart and everything, and suddenly you hear over the PA system, line four is now open. What are you going to do? You know? You're going to kind of knock that little kid and his mother over to get to lane four? Or are you gonna do the little, oh, ma'am, lane four is now open. When you know good well, lane four is this direction, you know? Or, or maybe we can use a different illustration. You're in the parking lot at Lowe's, you know? Your wife sent you out to, or somebody sent you out to Lowe's on Friday, to, needed just a couple more Christmas decorations to finish, finish those things up that you're putting inside the house or outside the house. And, and Lowe's parking lot was busy as can be on, on Friday and on Saturday. And, and here you are kind of going down the parking lot trying to find a parking spade. And you turn down a parking aisle, a lane this way, and another car turns down the same parking lane from this lane. And there's just one parking spot right in the middle. What are you going to do? Is it going to be like the shootout at the OK Corral? You know, do you, you, do, 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 you know? You gonna be doing that? Are you gonna flip on your blinker all of a sudden and honk your horn like, I saw it first? Or are we gonna practice giving preference to others? In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul writes this, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases that verse in the message. He writes it this way, be good friends who love deeply, practice playing second fiddle. Anybody know what second fiddle does? Nothing. <laughs> How many of you have ever been to an orchestra concert, right? Probably a few. Usually each, uh, each year about this time, Lynn and I, um, we've kind of had a tradition of uh, going to the uh, Southwest Michigan Symphony Orchestra, their Christmas concert at the Mendel Center. Now, this year, they're not having this because they still need to get a new director and all this COVID stuff's been going on. But every year, we, we, we go to that. At least we have for the last probably five or six, seven, eight years. Uh, we've gone to that. And it's a great way to celebrate Christmas and to listen to Christmas music. And, um, and so we go to the, the, the Symphony Orchestra. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been to an orchestra concert, you know that all the, the, the woodwinds are there and the brass instruments are there and the strings and the percussion, they're all sort of there and kind of everybody is sort of playing kind of their own little thing and kind of sorting out their music and playing with their music stands. And then all of a sudden, the first fiddle stands up. I know it's first violin, but we're going to say first fiddle, all right? So the first violin stands up and everybody immediately becomes totally quiet. The woodwinds, the strings, the percussion... The, uh, the brass, everybody becomes silent. And then the first fiddle, she just starts to play. And suddenly the, the woodwind instruments all begin to play and tune their instruments to first fiddle. 
And then the, the brass instruments, they all start to play, and they begin to tune all their instruments to first fiddle. And then all the other string instruments, the, the violins and the violas and the cellos and all that, they all begin to play, and they all tune their, their instruments to, to first fiddle. And everybody is focused on, everybody centers their attention on, and everybody's tuning their instrument to first fiddle. And what is second fiddle doing? Nobody knows, nobody cares. It's not about second fiddle. It's about first fiddle. And so Eugene Peterson says this about, about humility. He says, practice playing second fiddle. We don't always have to be first fiddle. And if we're going to grow in humility and grow in what matters most in life, we need to practice playing second fiddle. I mean, think about the example of Jesus. You talk about somebody that showed us how to play second fiddle. Think of the example of Jesus in Philippians 2. Paul writes in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's our word, count others more significant than yourselves. That sounds a lot like second fiddle. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That sounds a lot like second fiddle. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus who shows us how to play second fiddle, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he could have stayed first fiddle, but he didn't. But he emptied himself, and by taking the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ in his incarnation, his birth, and in his atoning sacrifice, his death, he taught us, he modeled for us this whole idea of playing second fiddle, of giving preference to others, about giving preference to us. And then what does the text say? It says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, follow Christ. Follow Christ by practicing giving preference to others. Practicing giving preference to others. Here's a second thought of how we can, we can allow, we can, uh, we can find ways to practice humility. Here's a second thought. Practice learning from others. Practice learning from others. Part of humility is teachability. Part of humility is, is being open to criticism. Part of humility is being willing to grow. Listen to what the, the author of Proverbs write in Proverbs 15, 32. He says, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. Well, that doesn't sound very smart. Goes on to say, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. So in other words, we've got a choice. I can either choose to just have everybody think I'm smart, or I can really choose to be smart. If I'm just going to choose to make everybody think I'm smart, then I never admit that I need to learn anything. But if I'm really going to become smart, then I'm open to instruction. I'm open to correction. I'm open to reproof. In Proverbs 13, verse 10, the author of Proverbs says, by insolence comes nothing but strife. In other words, by stubbornness comes nothing but strife. But with those who take advice, sounds a lot like humility, is wisdom. So humility leads to wisdom. You say, well, Mark, how do, how do I do that? How do I, how, do I, how do I practice learning from others? Well, here's a thought, all right? It'll, it'll take some courage for us to do this this week, but here's a thought. Let's each find a person this week that we're close to. Might be a sibling. 
might be a, a parent, might be a child, might be a spouse, might be a dear friend, a coworker, family member, but somebody that we're close to. Let's find someone this week that we're close to and let's ask that person a question. And here's the question. We go to that person we're close to and we ask them this, what do I need to learn? Now, what do they need to learn? What do I need to learn? We go to that person that we're close to and we say, what do I need to learn? Tell me what's out of whack in my life. What's out of whack in my schedule or my values or my priorities? What's out of whack with my attitude or my communication? It takes courage to be humble. But humble is in part learning from others. Listening to reproof gains intelligence. The person that takes advice is wise. See, there's a whole lot about humility that is tied in with teachability, that I'm willing to learn and be taught. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, the disciples came up to Jesus and they said this to Jesus. They had a question for Jesus. They came up to Jesus and they said to Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I kind of think if you read what was leading up to that, you kind of realize that they were all hoping that Jesus was pointing at maybe one of them and say, well, well, this disciple right here, he's the greatest one. So they really wanted to know. They were arguing with each other who was greatest, so let's go to the master, and he'll tell us who's greatest. And what did Jesus do? Verse 2 of Matthew 18, and calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of the disciples, and he said to them, truly I say to you, unless you turn and you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. And then he went on to say, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what is it about children that makes them the poster child for humility? Why is it that Jesus said, children, they really get the humility thing? Well, I think at least in part is because children are eager to learn. Children are teachable. You ever notice with children, it's always, no, let me do it. I want to do it. You know, uh, I, have, uh, I have three grandsons, and uh, two of them are old enough to, to ride on the lawn tractor. And one of them is probably old enough this next summer to probably drive the lawn tractor. But so they get on the lawn tractor, and I'm on the lawn tractor, and they're on the lawn tractor, and they both want to say, let me do it. They want to steer. They want to push the accelerator. They want to move the deck up and down. They want to do everything. They want to learn how to do it. They want to be taught. They just want to do it themselves. They want to experience that. Kids want to be taught. Children are teachable, and therefore children are humble. So you and I have a choice. Will I be teachable and humble, or will I not? Or will I not? Well, love practices humility, and so if we're going to practice humility then we need to practice learning from others. Here's a third thought. If we're going to practice humility, if we're going to grow in our practice of humility, then we need to practice admitting when I'm wrong. I need to practice admitting when I'm wrong. I need to grow, we need to grow in our understanding of the truth that we each make mistakes with regularity. Every one of us in this room, everyone at home, everyone in the gym, We all need to own the truth that we make mistakes with regularity. We all do that. And in Proverbs 28, verse 13, we're told that whoever conceals his mistakes, his transgressions, will not prosper. But he who fesses up and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 
So it seems like the smart thing to do is admit when we're wrong. In James chapter 5, verse 16, we're told, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So when I confess my sins to others and I fess up to my wrong, it leads to healing. Now, I know in that context, it's talking about physical healing, but I really think that when I fess up to my wrongs, it leads to all kinds of healing, relational healing, personal healing, all kinds of healing. So we need to practice admitting when we're wrong. Here's a fourth one. Practice surrendering my plans to God. If we're going to grow in our practice of humility and doing what matters most in life, then one of the things we need to work on is practice surrendering my plans to God. I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for me. Typically, I make my plans and then I ask God to bless them. And generally speaking, they're not like really horrible plans, you know? I mean, it's not like, Lord, I'm planning to rob a bank today, you know, or rip off my neighbor's Christmas decorations so that I have Christmas decorations. You know, my plans are usually like decent things, good things, but I tend to just simply make my plans and then ask God to bless my plans. And then when my plans for the day don't work out on my timetable, then I get a little frustrated with God. In James chapter four, verse six, we read this, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, I can think of a lot of people that I would not want as an opponent. I would not want LeBron James as an opponent in a pickup basketball game. I would not want Patrick Mahomes as an opponent in a pickup football game. I would not want Elon Musk as an opponent when it comes to inventing things and making electric cars and getting people to the space station and eventually to Mars. I just wouldn't want to take Elon Musk on. But you know, what I really don't want is I really don't want to be opposed by God. I don't want to be opposed by God. And yet, it says in this text that God isn't mildly irritated at me when I'm full of myself. God is in opposition to me. It says God opposes the proud. So what do I do? What do I do? Because I don't want God as my opponent. What do I do? Look at verse 7 of of James chapter 4. Submit myself, therefore, to God. If I don't want God as an opponent, if I don't want to get so full of myself, I need to submit myself, therefore, to God. What that means is that, God, I've got plans, I've got dreams, I've got goals and ambitions for my life but you put me on this earth for your dreams and your plans and your purposes, so I'm going to intentionally choose your plan for my life. That's humility. That's humility. So have we come to the place in our life where we say, God, I'm not going with my plan anymore. I'm going with your plan. And by the way, when it comes to God's plan for my life, like 98% of it is right here in this book. I don't need to look any further. And the 2% of God's plan for my life that's not specifically spelled out in this book, if I follow the 98% that is spelled out in this book, I'm pretty sure the other 2% will take care of itself. So God, I'm not going with my plans. I'm going with your plans. Humility is giving up control. Humility is submitting myself, therefore, to God. You know, you might find this kind of interesting that uh, our English language is based upon the Latin language. And our English word humility and our English word humanity come from the same root word 
in Latin. So what does that tell us? I think it tells us that humility is actually being in touch with my humanity. Humility is just being honest about my humanity. You see, I tend to think that I'm in control, but that's a myth. I can't even guarantee my next breath, you know? I've talked to a person this week that's just gone through COVID, and uh, she had it pretty bad. And there were a couple of days there where she wasn't even sure if she was going to have the next breath. It was that tough on her lungs, and it was extremely hard to breathe. And I think, well, I, I don't even think about my next breath. I think I'm totally in control of that. I'm not even in control of my next breath. I think I'm in control of this afternoon. I think I know what I'm going to do this afternoon. I don't even know. I don't even know. In all honesty, I don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon. So you and I, the safest and the soundest thing to do for you and I is to surrender and say, Jesus Christ, your director, your Lord. Your director, your Lord. So which of these four habits of humility do we need to practice this week? Maybe we can put them in the form of questions. How quickly do I adjust to the needs of others around me and give them preference and play second fiddle? How eager am I to listen and learn from correction? How quickly do I admit when I'm wrong? How willing am I to surrender my plans to God? Folks, if love is what matters most in life, then what is love? The Bible teaches me that love is a command, a choice, a conduct, and a commitment. God is telling us that it's imperative that we intentionally and consistently choose to practice love. So what is love? Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not arrogant. Love does not boast. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we recognize that, uh, that maybe some of the things that matter most in life to us aren't exactly what matter most in life to you. And we're learning, Father, from 1 Corinthians 13 that one of the things that matters most in life to you is love. It's love. Love for you love for others around us. So Father, we recognize that there is a, that we all have a long, that I have a long ways to go when it comes to truly practicing the characteristics of love. But Father, might we take these practical things that we have shared today, might we take them home with us this week? And might we work on the, the areas of life where we're envious? Might we work on practicing a greater degree of humility in our lives? Folks, Lord, not for our glory, but for our good and for your glory, so that we might do more and more what truly, truly, truly matters most in life. Father, we thank you for your word today. It is in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.